All right, thanks, guys. That's too high. It's a problem with this thing on the, <laughs> on the thing I'm preaching off of. Um, well, let's see, is uh, Russ Nelson here today? Russ? Men's retreat. I was going to ask him if he thought what I thought of when we saw Godzilla up there. You know what I'm talking about? Were you thinking that? <laughs> a lot of you guys are unaware. When we started the church at uh, Hiawatha about six years ago, uh, Russ Nelson helped us start the church, and Kristen, a lot of people from Hope are sending church, and Russ uh, did up some cool ads for the theater, just north of the Riverview Theater, and one of them had a picture of our church building with uh, Godzilla Photoshop behind the building, and I think it just said, all are welcome at the bottom, something like that. <laughs> right? You guys remember those? There's one, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, I think, too. There's a few of them. Those, pre, those pre-movie slides, you know, that play at theaters, it was, we got, got in those for a while, so... So apparently we love Godzilla at this church, and it's, that's great. Um, Godzilla is always welcome here at, uh, at Hiawatha, which is, which is cool. Okay, well, uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, we're, we're glad you're here if you're visiting today, especially welcome to you. I'm glad you're here to worship with us, and uh, this is the time of our service we set aside for preaching and for teaching the Bible, talking about Jesus and the gospel, and um, we are just going to look at vintage Jesus today. Just a great passage on, uh, I think it surmises what Christ was about, at least in his pre-cross ministry. He's going to heal people. He's already done that a couple of times, several times actually. Uh, but today we're going to read about four more healings, so we're lumping them together. Uh, but one thing I want to just say here at this point, uh, especially if you've been here and seen healings occur already, is uh, remember that the Bible is just great literature. It's inspired by God. And like any classic novel or great movie even, uh, they use literary devices like repetition. There are many, but repetition's one of them to emphasize a point or a theme. So we can't hear at this point, even if we just acknowledge that Matthew wrote the gospel uh, alone, but of course it was God inspiring him to do it. So whether we look at God or Matthew as the author of this, we can at this point say that God or Matthew says, oh, I just forgot that two chapters ago I wrote about three healings. Oh, shoot, repetitious. I should take that out, but too late now. You know, we can't say that, right? What we should say is, what is God saying to us in the repetition, right? What does he want us to know? And in a big picture sense, we'll talk about some of the details here as we go this morning, but at least we can say that he wants us to know, he's at pains to show us that Jesus is a healer in the Bible. He's many things. He has many characteristics. And if you pick up a, a theology book of any uh, size or shape, you're going to probably get a chapter on the characteristics of God or what he's like, um, the nature of God. And like his grace and mercy and compassion, things like that. And, and Jesus is the son of God. So we see a lot of that play out in his life and ministry. But here in this portion of Matthew especially, we see that Matthew and God inspiring Matthew to write the Bible is at pains to show us that he takes bad things out of us, to put it very simply. He's a doctor and a miraculous one at that. He's a healer. And so repetition then pounds that into our mind. It's not a passing thing, and Jesus just happened to heal one person on his way to Jerusalem or something like that. This is a lot of text given, a lot of ink given over to Jesus healing people of all kinds of maladies, all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of problems. And thoroughly so. It's one thing we're going to look at a little bit later is the breadth of his power. There's no point in the Gospels where it says, and there is this one particular thing like blindness that Jesus couldn't heal. He could heal everything else, but not this one particular thing. We never get that, right? And so sometimes it's the white space we have to look in and say, not just what does the Bible say, but what by implication does it not say? And that's one thing we see is there's nothing he can't do. Nothing. Nothing he can't heal. No problem he can't solve. And with physical healings, no sickness that he can't address and rebuke 
and pull out of us to the glory of God. So, but going back to repetition, uh, let me just freshly invite you guys to think about that today and think about it in terms of God wanting us to know that because we're hearing the word of God today. This is how he speaks to us primarily in his word. And so he wants us to know today, he's called us here for a reason, he's sovereign over our lives and he wants us to know that he's the healer of our souls. So with that said, uh, let me read the entire passage today, Matthew 9, 18 to 34. Like I said, there's four healings that comprise these kind of three sections. The first section has two in it. I'm going to read it all, and we'll come back and basically talk about some review stuff today, because again, we've seen healings take place already, and then some new uh, stuff as well that fills uh, the narrative section here in Matthew 9. So let's read. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garments, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. All right, so here's what we're going to do today. I think I mentioned this before, but basically two sections. We're going to go back and review a couple of things. But if you're new to the Bible or new to Hiawatha today, this will be new stuff as well. So all of it will be new to you, I guess. But if you've been here for a little while and seen... Some things occur here, some healings occur already and, and been here for the preaching. Uh, this will be some review, but good stuff to remember and realize, and it just preaches to us as well when we go back to what healings are all about in a greater biblical sense, but then talk about some new stuff too. So even though there's similarities like this, there's repetition happening with healings in the Bible, they're not identical either. And so when we come to these latter portions, we have to also ask, what's new here? What does Jesus say that he doesn't say before to the crowds? or to people being healed. Or there's some similarities, and we'll hit on those too. That's important, but what's brand new, and what do we learn about Jesus and his mission, ourselves and our sin, the nature of salvation? How does all of this build to the cross as well in those uh, portions of the narrative too? So but let's start with review, and what I want to do is just review a, a biblical theology of healing. So when we use that phrase, biblical theology, it just means what does the whole of the Bible have to contribute? The whole of the scriptures have to say about the topic of healing, and remember that if you're brand new to the scriptures too, and going back to our first Matthew sermon, we've reviewed this almost every day. But when we talk about these early portions of the gospels, so 
what Jesus was saying and doing and teaching and accomplishing before he dies on the cross for our sins, that portion or that genre of the scriptures is kind of Old Testament-like in the sense that it builds a story to the cross. So what Jesus is saying and doing has, it's not an end in and of itself, in other words. The story doesn't end there. It builds ahead and points ahead, like all of the Old Testament, uh, to the cross as well. So, in other words, the New Testament really begins at the cross, not the manger. When Jesus is born in a manger, when God takes on flesh, it's an amazing event. But the New Testament, even though the page right before that in our Bible says New Testament, the New Testament or New Covenant doesn't really fully begin there. It really comes into history in a fresh way, in a new way, but it really begins when he sheds blood on on the cross for our sins. Jesus himself says that. Hours before his death, he has a Passover meal, holds up a cup of wine and said, this is my blood of the New Testament my blood of the new covenant, and I'm going to die for sins, for transgressions. In it is the rescue plan of God for you. And so your belief in that is what makes you one of mine. Your faith in that is what makes you a child of God. It makes you a person of grace, a person of the New Testament, a saved, a messy but saved individual, in other words. So, so have that in mind. And we're still before that here, to be clear. Matthew 9 still chapters before the cross. So the question is, how does this all build, all of this build ahead? Before I talk to that, actually, I got ahead of myself a little bit, just to make sure this is clear to you. I think this is a cool thing to think about. Types of people who have been healed so far in Matthew, so we've seen epileptics, lepers, paralytics, those with fevers, the demonized, the blind, the mute, and now today, even the dead. And back in chapter 4, it actually says, it talks about a few of these, Then after it says, just kind of a catch-all category, it says, and all kinds of people with all kinds of afflictions were healed. So, In case we get to the point and say, well, did Jesus just come for epileptics and the blind? Well, of course not, right? But even if we're thinking that, it inserts these special things, and actually next week's going to as well, these little clauses about healing every disease and affliction too. Again, nothing that Jesus Jesus can't cover. But going back to the biblical theology thing, we saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, Peter Carlson did a great job preaching through a portion of chapter 9, one of Jesus' healings of a paralytic. So some of you remember this story where a a paralyzed man was lowered through a roof by four friends to get close to Jesus because there was crowds around him seeking to be healed of his paralysis. But the first thing that is said to the paralytic is take heart. Jesus says this to him. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. So picture that scene. A guy's wanting healing from his paralysis. He can't walk. He's lowered in a blanket through a roof by his friends. First thing Jesus says is take heart. Be encouraged, in other words. Your sins are forgiven. So in the context then of this guy clearly needing and wanting a physical help, healing of some kind, for Jesus to grant a spiritual need like forgiveness of sins is not only to suggest that the spiritual need is much greater, and Peter called this a triage care a couple weeks ago. I thought that's a really helpful metaphor. Like in triage in an ER, you go in, you got multiple issues, doctors will take care of the worst problem first. That's what Jesus the doctor is doing here. He's going to the core of the issue The symptom, in a sense, maybe is paralysis, but the core issue he has is he's rebelled against his creator. He's sinned. He has a sin transgression paralysis of the soul issue that Jesus looks into, knows it, sees it, forgives him of his sins entirely. Triage care. So not only then is Jesus doing triage-like stuff here and, and suggesting that sins are worse than paralysis, but it's also suggesting in a way that Physical healing is granting us a picture, 
a forerunning picture of a greater type of inner cleansing as well, which is very consistent with how the Bible reads itself. Again, namely, just in a progression from physical shadows and types to spiritual realities. And Jesus gets at that too in the bottom part of this passage. After he forgives sins, the Pharisees, religious rulers say, you can't do that. That's not how this works. Who gave you authority? God has authority to do that, but who are you? Jesus, hearing that, says, so that you may know, this is super key. This is like paradigm stuff here for understanding how to read physical healings in the Bible. So that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. So that you may know that that I have authority to cleanse, wash, and forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up and walk and heal them physically. So see the connection there? It's a strong connection between the two. He's, He's basically saying that the physical healing is undergirding or supporting or pointing to the greater spiritual healing of sins. And so with that paradigm, and Jesus doesn't have to say things that clearly necessarily for us to understand this because we know the Bible paints the cross in a healing type of way all throughout the New Testament. So we have that as well. But Jesus does, in fact, still say this and demonstrate this with his words that the physical healings are supports or points or showings of authority that he has the authority to forgive sins and do that triage care um, by going to the heart, heart matters of sin. It also reminded me of the story of uh, the man who promised his son a horse when he was five, when he, when he turned 16, I'll buy you a horse. But in the meantime, the car was invented. And so he ended up buying his son a car instead. And so the question is, did the man fail in his promise? Did he, did he fail by not getting him a horse and getting a car instead? And the answer, of course, is no, right? It's just promises develop. And in this man's story, things were, better things were invented. Greater gifts were brought into to history. So he gave his son that. In the same way, when God speaks in the Bible prophetically about the horse or physical healing, he still always intends and focuses on the car or forgiveness of sins, which is the greater gift. So going back to that portion of Matthew 9, if Jesus ended up not physically healing the paralytic of his paralysis, would he have failed him? And I think the answer is no, right? I mean, we have a hope for ultimate physical healing in yet, in yet future, but to get these things in proper order... And to emphasize them the way the Bible does and God does, we have to acknowledge that Jesus is more about forgiveness of sins. He heals and offers in an inclusive manner forgiveness of our spiritual paralysis to everybody on the planet through his death and resurrection. But he does not physically heal everybody. Just doesn't. A handful, really. If you look at what the scripture, what the scriptures teach, and there's a lot of things just generally mentioned, of course, many people not by name, that are passingly mentioned who were healed. So he healed a lot of people, but, but in terms of how many people lived on the planet at that time, very, very, very few. So there's a greater gift, and that gift is forgiveness, forgiveness of sin. So, so going back to this issue, then if healings are this, physical ones, this demonstration or forerunner of spiritual healing, if they point to the cross that way, which is where forgiveness takes place, then here's the point here today. This is all background stuff, but Here's what I think we need to do. We need to not just see this in the general terms, like understand on the cross, this is what happened. He made me stand up. He, he made me in my sin get off that mat, take my mat and go home. And he talks about Israel in the Old Testament too, walking erect. So like it's almost like spiritually they were, and physically because they were oppressed. and uh, Enslaved, they were hunched over and carrying yokes of burden all over the place. But when God delivered, he talked about them in that sense. And Spiritually speaking, that's what happens to us. But that's a broad thing. In a specific sense, we can also ask, with 
narratives like this, how is he healing and to what extent does he heal from sin as well? So you see the broad and the specific? This is about the cross ultimately and Jesus being our healer, but also he's doing some very specific kinds of things here too. He's talking to people when he's healing them. He's healing in a certain kind of manner. And so we can read ourselves into this physically, but especially spiritually and say, in this manner, he has forgiven me of my sins. In this manner, he has cleansed me of my sins. In this manner, he is my savior. Have to do that. This is what the, the word is intending to do. So when we ask that question then, uh, two things. First and focused, I alluded to this earlier. First and focused, I think, is just the breadth of his power to heal. The fact that Jesus heals from such a variety of sicknesses tells us that he came for all, and in a spiritual way, to heal from all types of sin. This is incredibly good news, right? And for some of you, especially today, you're probably, you probably walked in here thinking that there's a type of sin that Jesus can't cover, or maybe not a type of sin, but a prolonged type of sin. I think that's the more common thing we think of is, yes, I, I know the Bible says that Jesus can heal of all sins, but I've been entrenched in this sin for 50 years. And as a Christian, I can't shake it. I keep going back to it over and over and over again. And can Jesus forgive me? Can, can he, is he still look, looking upon me lovingly? Is he still able to take that type of sin away? And the answer is, from passage like this, I encourage you to not just go to passages in the New Testament that say, prepositionally, Jesus takes care of all sin once and for all, and he's that powerful. But go to narrative like this and feel it a bit more and say, because of Matthew 9, it's true that Jesus heals of all sin. There's nothing outside of his power. Whatever it is, adultery, murder, terrorism, worship of other gods, extreme arrogance, unkindness, lying, grumbling, more subtle kinds of sins, sins we don't even realize we're doing, everything, and pervasive type sins, severe sins. We actually see the severity issue come up here in Matthew 9 when that bleeding woman is described as bleeding for 12 years. So kind of wrapped up in that description is this idea that no one could take care of her. She'd likely been to, who knows, dozens of physicians that couldn't take care of her. She's bleeding. In an Old Testament sense, she's unclean. She has to live outside the city and far away from the temple and where people worship and all of that. And so she's actually not just physically sick, but probably relationally sick as well. And this is 12 years. But she hears about Jesus and she goes into the city, like the leper did earlier in the story that we read a few weeks ago, and touches his garment. But again, Read yourself into this. It, that's us. In the same way, we're bleeding out on the ground from our sin and we have absolutely no hope in the world until this man comes into our life, our city, right? And walks the streets of our world, speaks to us. We hear him and we trust in him that just reaching out for him is all that's required by faith to be healed. If, if we, presuming we, that we do that. Not all do, of course, but... This is a description of the spiritual state of every human being who's ever lived. We're bleeding out on the ground, dying without hope until Christ, until Christ comes. So, so I think what's worshipful and helpful is to understand that it's in that state that Jesus saw us in despair. That's what we were like when he came to rescue us, just like that woman, or like the dead girl that we'll read about here more in a second, just lying there doing nothing great and glorious before God, but lying there dead, and Jesus touches us and raises us up. Do you see how much it's about Jesus here and how little it's about us? That's part of the point. Jesus does everything 
we do nothing. We lie there like a dead person. The Bible calls us spiritually dead in many places in the scriptures, not doing anything but waiting for a redeemer and hearing his voice call us from the tombs and just waking up like Lazarus in a different story and like this unnamed little girl right here in, in today's story. Come to more of that in a second. So the first thing is the breadth of his power. The second thing is, is the means of healing is always, of course, Jesus, like I just talked about. But from our vantage point, too, we add in the element of faith. Faith. It's always that. If you guys have been here and read Matthew, any of the Gospels, but especially if you've been here for the past several weeks, you've probably noticed this pattern, right? Jesus says this all the time, all over the place. Things like, your faith, this is from verse 22 today, but your faith has made you well. Or in verse 28 today, do you believe that I am, believe, do you believe that I am able to do this? And then the next verse, 29 says, according to your faith, be it done to you. So this phrase or some variation of it has already come up several times in connection with healings and intentionally so. Again, God, Jesus and God want us to know that it's faith that is the channel for this. And by faith, we just mean trust or belief. Trust or belief, dependence on God for deliverance. That's what we see demonstrated by the actions of the people here and Jesus acknowledging that you're coming to me out of need. You realize you can't save yourself nor any person or doctor or other God that doesn't really exist in the world but you still have worshipped in your life. Nothing can save except me. That's the kind of faith that is responded to by Christ and rewarded in, in both Testaments by God in the Old Testament by Jesus Christ, the Son of God here in, in the New. So I think this is significant then on two levels. Notice then, just to be very clear, this is kind of one of those white space readings like I referred to before. But notice it doesn't say when Jesus especially responds to the woman, it doesn't say, according to your good works, your charm, your kindness, your volunteer service record, your general likability, your powerful prayers, or the fact that you've been to church a thousand times, be it done unto you. You guys see that? Kind of a dust statement, but kind of not, because we forget that. Notice all it said is, because of your faith. Actually, in reference to the woman, notice it doesn't say, because you touched me, either. It doesn't say that, due to your touch, the fact that you found me and you reached out and touched me, you are well, but according to your faith, that you believed in me, that you believed I was sufficient and enough to take away your bleeding condition that no one else could. Because of that, that's the channel now for my power to work in, in your life. So that's the first thing. We didn't do anything just like the woman here. Jesus does it all. And belief in that is the channel. The second thing is, just to make a, a comment here that we haven't yet, I believe, in Matthew, is that a vague sense of faith, this is a common thing, I think, for our culture, and probably always has been, but I feel like it's very common today, a vague sense of just faith, or we hear the phrase being a person of faith a lot, just used broadly in the world, and that's something that is, I think, a label for being a religious person or maybe a good spiritual person, being a person of faith. We never see vague faith rewarded in the Bible. Talked about as a good thing, or Jesus responding, in some cases, being impressed by faith. It's never just general belief that there's a God out there and that things are going to work out for us in the end. You don't see that either. Um, th that's something the world defines faith as. But faith, biblically, is much more precise than that. So it has to be, when someone says, I'm a person of faith, whether you do or someone in your context does, 
always has to be qualified biblically. Faith in what? Or in whom? Well, faith in Jesus. Well, in what sense are you trusting him? What did he do? What is he able to do for you? All these questions have to, have to be answered so that we know that we're trusting in the right person and his right work for us on the cross to deliver us from our sins. All these people here, in other words, are trusting in Jesus for washing and cleansing. They're, they're, they're in their, by extension, not trusting themselves. That's being a person of dependence and faith in Jesus as well. So the man, the God-man Christ and being saved, trusting to save is the precise definition of faith and trust and belief that the Bible presents that sometimes goes without saying, but sometimes it really doesn't. There are many people, maybe even here today, that many people in your context, that that's the way you can minister to them and preach the gospel is to say, general, vague faith is never really talked about in any way, at least as a good way, in a good way in the scriptures. Precise faith in Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross. That's the type of dependent, that's the life raft in the middle of the ocean that we have to cling to. Without that, we're just spiritual. And we're not really different from any type of religion on the planet. We have to have a specific Christness and cross-centeredness about our faith. Otherwise, we're too vague and we're just as lost as we were before. Okay, that's some review where we've been before, some bigger theological concepts, some also looking at the manner by which Jesus heals and believing that, resting in that. That's the call there, is to believe like these people do as well, to have that faith channel for Christ's power. Uh, another thing, though, too, I want to talk about some of the new things that are present here. So I have three things. One of these is a little bit of a passing comment just to teach on something, uh, but it does relate some of what I talked about before. The last two things are more than meat. So, but just to get this first one addressed, the first is the messianic secret. So this is just a phrase that people use to, to describe what Jesus does when he says, see to it that no one hears about this miracle. Did you ever wonder why Jesus does that? Um, I did too, and still do, by the way. Not an easy answer. Uh, but he does that quite often in the scriptures. He'll, he'll heal, and then he'll forbid people to go and tell others about it. And you've got to think in one sense why, right? If he's here for the sake, and we know later in this story, he's all about spreading the gospel to more. He's all about spreading his fame and what he did to the ends of the earth. So what makes it so important at this point in the story that he would actually want to stop people's mouths from talking about him and what he did so that his ministry would actually kind of remain, remain quiet. What does this tell us about his mission? Actually, I think is the better question. So I think there's two things. Uh, again, some of this is a question mark. People wrestle with this. I think we do know something. We're going to look at a passage in actually just a few weeks, I think, at the end of the summer about this and unpack this more. So I'm not going to talk a ton about it today, uh, but enough, hopefully, <laughs> to uh, satisfy some of our questions about it. But first thing is this. One thing we know about Jesus is that even at this point in his ministry, this is a phrase from Luke. I don't think it comes up in Matthew, the Gospel of Luke. Is that even here, he was setting his eyes towards Jerusalem. In other words, setting his eyes towards the place where he wanted and knew that he was going to go and die. That's what that means. When you see that phrase come up in the Bible, that's what it means. Setting his eyes towards the cross setting his eyes towards the city where he'll be ultimately rejected, he knows this, and die on a cross for sins. Always his plan. Never a plan B for God. He was sent into the world to die as a human being, but also God in our place, and satisfy debt, satisfy judgment and the wrath of God for us and absorb that in our place. Substitutionary. Always his plan to do that. It's the, the core of, of the gospel. 
But at this point in the story, then we can read back into it and say, everything down to the last detail of all of this was orchestrated by him. Everything he does is intentional. Even the timing of his death, that's crucial. We know that's the case. We'll come to more of this later in latter sections of Matthew. But even the timing of his death we see in the Gospels is orchestrated by him. There there are points where if he doesn't say something and admit to something or confess something that actually is the Son of God, he would never have been crucified. And he didn't have to under Jewish law. So he's clearly, clearly, clearly wanting to do this and making this everything that he's, that he's about. But the timing of that is, is crucial too. So Jesus knew then it wouldn't take too long for the world to reject him once people realized that he was the son of God, that he was making these claims of deity. And in some cases, many people believe that he was there to be a political messiah. Jesus is here to deliver us from Roman rule in the land. And once they started to realize that, oh, he's pretty clearly about lots of healings here, but what about the Romans? Then the ball really would have gotten rolling and he would have been rejected maybe sooner than he would, than he would have wanted to because, among other things, it was necessary for him to die on the Passover. Passover is one of the Jewish festivals. We'll talk about the rationale for that weeks from now. But for today, suffice it to say, he needed to die by fulfill, to fulfill the scriptures, to die on the Passover festival, to fulfill that, and in the ultimate way represent what the Passover lamb and that festival was all about. So he's orchestrating things, and one of the ways he's doing this is quieting people so that his true identity would come out at the proper time, and not too soon, but at the exact time that he desires it and that God the Father desires it as well. So we could still respond here, of course, and say, but people didn't obey, right? I just love that. Jesus sternly warns not to tell, but then people went out and told basically everybody on the planet, you know, whatever it is. Like, come on, weren't you just, didn't, weren't you just there? Uh, but what we can do in response to that is just to say that Jesus' suppression of that um, wasn't responded to. It's part of the point here is that people's obedience to Jesus was not the forefront of their minds. They're sinners, right? They heard Jesus command something and they just instantly disobeyed. And so one of the things we see is just thorough, ongoing sinfulness and rebellion against our creator, just like us. We're all in the same boat. And so that's part of it. But at the end of the day, we know that he still died right when he wanted to. He still died on Passover. He still timed this all perfectly. And so God is sovereign. And probably a lot of people did listen to that that we don't know about. They probably, and so in that sense, it was still suppressed until the proper time and he still died at the perfect time. So all, so all that is still in play. That's the first thing. Timing his death perfectly is a piece to it. Second though, and relatedly, I think when Jesus says, see to it that no one hears that I've just healed these two demonized individuals or blind people or whatever it is, related to that, When Jesus says that, by definition, I think it caters to the idea that something greater is on the horizon. You know, when Jesus is suppressing these things, I think it just implicitly implies that he's building towards something. He's doing this for a reason. And something greater than these healings is, this goes back to all we were talking about before. It's another way we see this demonstrated in the Bible. The healings just aren't it. If it was, he'd he'd announce it from the mountaintop that the kingdom of God is fully here. I mean, think about this. When Jesus rose from the dead, did he ever say, don't tell anybody about this? Anybody? No, right? That's an important one to know. No, never. Never ever says that. Quite the opposite. So we see a huge difference here, right? He never squelches that, but he does squelch things here. So again, it caters this idea that physical healings, the messianic secret, 
are preparatory and lesser and used to time his death perfectly for theological reasons we'll talk more about later. Uh, But the death and resurrection of Christ is greater. That's immediately when he rises. He says, tell everybody that this has happened. Run. Tell the others, he says to Mary, who was the first to see Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Tell them. And then later on he says, it was written that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day rise again and that all nations should hear after that. I'll quote that here in a little bit. But the opposite we see. So I think what the messianic secret at least tells us implicitly in the white space again is that something better is on the horizon, namely his death on the cross and the empty tomb, the whole reason why he came, the ultimate reason. Again, talk much more about this in greater detail later, but that's something for for today, bone for today. All right. Big thing, though, today is resurrection, right? We haven't seen this yet. This is amazing that Jesus does that. Try to put yourself in the position. Whenever you read about healing, put yourself in the position of the one being healed and as a witness. They're a little bit different. Try to do it as both. And maybe as if you have a little girl yourself or a little boy, if you're a parent, you know, picture that. Your child dying and what that would do to you spiritually, emotionally, physically even, and the urgency that that would place upon you to find some reversal for this. So, but we haven't seen this yet. We've seen living people get well, but we haven't seen dead people uh, come to life. And Jesus only does this a couple of times in the Gospels. He raises a couple of people from the dead. Lazarus is uh, the other one. Uh, but it is still very significant in how it builds to, to the cross. So, but I think significant here is the exchange between Jesus and people. Remember I said that last week in regards to fasting? Jesus will do that a lot. He'll use a question or a circumstance a miracle to teach about himself. So here's, he's, he's doing this as well. He's talking to people as he's doing this, and he's separating people as he's doing this. He's eliciting response as he's doing this that, again, is a picture of our response to the gospel as well, something to actually to hear today and, and respond to. It's very black and white in a lot of ways. But here's the exchange. Let me read it again. Verses 23 to 26. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd... Making a commotion, he said, go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all of that district. All right, so what I love about this story, lots of things, but I love the simple statement, go away. You know? So try to picture yourself there. Got to do that, again, just as a person in the crowd or maybe even as the father or mother, whatever it is, who lost their child. Get a feeling for this. A man walks up to a house full of mourners. So we don't know how exactly long it was, a couple of days, probably this girl is, maybe not quite that long, but that this girl's been lying there, died. Uh, People, relatives, family, people from the neighborhood, mourning and making a commotion and wailing and different types of things like this. In the first century, there were people that were actually sometimes paid to be mourners. Can you just mourn outside my house so it just looks like we're, we're mourning more? Crazy things like that. We don't know if that's happening here, but that was happening to you. But just lots of, it says here, commotion, mournful hearts, as you'd expect to a degree, of course. Uh, but then it says, Jesus walks into that situation and says, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. So go home. In other words, it's inappropriate to be mourning here. She's not dead. She's, she's just sleeping. Even though she was dead. Sleep and death are a strong correlate, correlated metaphor in the scriptures. So, but he's saying sleeping to refer to the temporal nature of, of her death. But he goes in and says, she's not dead. She is sleeping. She then puts people outside who laughed at him for that and mocked, walked in and 
touched her hand, and she rose. I mean, this would be like basically someone going into a funeral and clearing house and saying, inappropriate. This isn't it. This is not the end for her. She's not dead, right? We'd say that right away if there's a, we're a funeral, and she's, she's just sleeping, you know? I mean, get the, let's just actually get the band to play something happy here now, right? I mean, this is actually a, this is a happy day. This is not put the tears away, all of that. And so the response, as you can imagine, is a mix between a ton of hope, probably for the ruler and his wife and maybe some others, a mix between that and offense you would take at Jesus doing that, and mockery. We see people just outright laughing at Jesus and mocking him for this. And D.A. Carson, one of the commentators in this passage I was reading, says, some are likely laughing here because they expect Jesus to finally have met his match. Epileptics, come on. Fevers, probably just natural, whatever. But a dead, she, maybe he doesn't realize that she's actually dead. He's going to walk out and say, I couldn't do it. And so starting to actually la- laugh and expose a bit of their true heart in terms of what they think about him here in this portion. But laughing because they expect Jesus to finally meet his match with death and to make a fool of himself trying to raise up this dead girl. So notice then the separation that happens here as well. This is a really key part, great way to understand more of the nature of salvation and his mission in a narrative like this and what happens. Remember, people are always a part of this. He's not doing this privately. He's doing this to elicit response and to tell us something about himself. And so if that's the case, response of people is always going to take one of two things. And separation like this, it's very clear here actually, more implicit elsewhere, but this is one of the more explicit places. The separation. Jesus sends the crowd that laughed and mocked outside the house closed the door, and only people that didn't laugh and believed got to see the miracle. They were only ones that were associated with the miracle of, of death to life, of the, revert, the, the ultimate healing, really, right? Is there any better healing? Of course not, right? Because it's always living to better living or something. But dead to life, that's the ultimate healing. They didn't get to see it. They didn't get to associate with it and maybe further develop their faith in Christ uh, by, by seeing that. They'd hear about it later, but there's still be that question mark for them. So separation is, is really key. In the same way, those who disbelieve that he is able to raise the dead today are kept away from him. Remember, this is about manner type stuff and a picture of our experience here as well. Those, those of us today in this room or outside this building, anywhere around the world, who disbelieve that he is the only way to God or disbelieve that they can't do at least a little bit to make themselves favorable to God or who disbelieve that, that he is that ultimate Savior and able to even stare death in the face, rebuke it, and make it run. People who don't believe that are kept away from him. That's the ultimate call to faith, right? We believe he's a Savior or, or not. Those who believe, who trust, like the ruler here, remember the ruler believed that. He said, Jesus, if you touch my dead girl's arm, she will be well. So he believed. He was kept inside. He was able to be a part of the resurrection uh, here as well. So this stuff confronts us, right? And I want to make sure this is really clear for all of us today because we're here hearing this. There is no like third neutral agnostic option. You know, do we believe that or not? That's what the text is, the passage here is confronting us with. Which type are we? And if you're outside the house right now, doesn't mean you're lost forever. It just means you're in a current state of disbelieving, but the invitation is knock on the door and say, actually, I, I was wrong to laugh, I was wrong to mock, I was wrong to disbelieve. You are the Savior. You are the only way. And walk in 
and associate then with death to life. Associate with washing of sin forever. Associate ultimately with forgiveness and with the cleansing of that inner disease that we all have. Associate with that. So, because remember, again, the resurrection here, just a forerunner of this greater cosmic one that Jesus will enable later uh, through, through his own. But that resurrection is always a key piece. Actually, actually, if you think about it, our message today is very similar to what was likely the message there in Matthew 9. There's probably some simple message announced, whether by the ruler or someone else, that Jesus is here to make my girl alive again. Right? It had to happen. I mean, people probably heard him invite Jesus in the first place and followed him to his house. But there's likely some announcement there. That's why they were laughing. And Jesus said, he actually, she's just sleeping. Uh, but that's really our presentation of the gospel to each other. It's what we talk about every week. Jesus is able to slay death. Jesus is able to slay the thing that we all do that brings us to death, which is sin and wrongdoing and rebelling against God and worship of the self and even doing our good deeds, good moral things on our own strength. Even that is an offense to him because it is as though we are setting ourselves up on the throne of our life and making ourselves our own God. It's the core of sin. Worship of the self and worship of really anything else, idolatry uh, besides, besides God. So, that's basically what we say. We invite people to that, and many will laugh and mock. Many of you have. I've been laughed at and mocked many times in my life for telling the, sharing the gospel with somebody. Most, maybe many of you, maybe most of you have as well. That's actually very normal. I, mean, I tend to think, if it happened to Jesus, of course it's going to happen to me, right? It's like all of us. happened to the Son of God. If he was rejected, if he was laughed at, of course we will, because he's inside of us, but we're also lesser vessels, right? So that's just, it's normative. Some will disbelieve. The Pharisees here, actually, with the, the next passage, just write it off to Jesus being in, in league with demons themselves. He must be somehow demonic. He must be working with Satan himself to drive out demons. That's, that, that must be it. What other explanation is there? So, And right before that, people just rejoicing over the gospel uh, that's being embodied here. The good news of the fact that these demonized men can talk now again. So, again, two responses, right? Outside the house, inside the house. Rejoicing over the exorcism. Ah, it was just the devil doing something crazy. So it's always two things, right? Which is it uh, for, for us today? Which is it for you right now? Forget yesterday. Right now, this confronts us. Who is he to you? Is he the way to life? Is he your savior? Is he the only way to be saved or, or not? That's, that's what it always comes down to right here in these sections. Response is so key. Last thing, third, third and final thing I'll mention here is more about this response that I think is really helpful. Um, it, it talks more about a particular type of response that I think we should all have to the gospel of grace. And that is this, this simple phrase. Um, you can go one more uh, there. Yep. We have never seen anything like this in Israel. So this is from verse 33. The crowds marveled. This is in reference to the exorcisms, but can be applied to the resurrection as well. Happened right after, likely. Uh, we have never seen anything like this. Never has anything like this been done. Uh, past tense in, in Israel. So think about that statement for a minute, especially if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, if you're not, I'll give a short list here of some things. But I think there are two possibilities in terms of what's being said here. One, they're just saying, never has exorcism 
happened before, or never has resurrection happened in this manner. Resurrection occurred uh, a couple of times in the Old Testament. So he could be saying, never in this type of authoritative manner, or maybe this quick of manner, this powerful of manner, has uh, this type of thing happened before. I think that's certainly a piece to it. But I also think there's something bigger. I think it could also mean that these things Jesus is doing are greater things than former things. They're just better. So never have we seen anything like this. In other words, never has anything even been, could be a different thing, but it's never been, nothing's comparable to things that Jesus is doing here in his, in his ministry. And if that's the case, we can ask, why is that significant? I mean, think about how many amazing things Israel saw in the Old Testament. I mean, the, the, the ridiculously amazing, right? Miraculous. I mean, just a short list. The parting of an ocean into huge walls of water, making the ground dry in between, walking on that, and closing it back over Egyptians as they chased you through. That'd be pretty cool to see, right? An experience. There's things like that. Walking around the walls of Jericho falling down just because people walked around it and yelled at it a couple of times. Dude, right? I mean, there's a couple of things that I just kind of wish I lived a long time ago, but a couple of things that are slain. The slain of a nine-foot giant warrior by a little boy. The sun stopping overhead during one of Israel's battles. It just stopped for hours so that Israel could continue to slaughter their enemies and find victory over people that, that were resisting their entrance into the promised land. The survival of three Jewish men in a fiery furnace. They walked around inside and talked to an angel. Wow, you know? Even their own resurrections that they experienced. I mentioned that there were a couple. Not to mention national deliverance over 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 and over and over and over again. What is that saying? When this guy says, never seen anything like this, he's saying that all those things are great, but lesser and preparatory, right? It goes back to that whole thing we're talking about, biblical theology. They're great, but they're not ends and of themselves. They're lesser. And what Jesus is doing here is better. The type of miraculous power and authority here surpasses everything before. You can almost feel some of the tension here of some of the Jews that are likely experiencing, you know, that, that inner turmoil expecting a political Messiah to overthrow Roman occupation in the land, but witnessing all these kinds of things that Jesus is doing, like we're reading today and all kinds of other teachings and power and authority, you know, and saying, well, what do I say to that? This is obviously great, right? I mean, the Pharisees are saying, you know, demons. You know, it's kind of all you can say, right? Obviously amazing, never been unprecedented, never been seen before. Uh, but then do you say, well, what about the Romans? Can we kind of go over there and it's almost kind of silly, right? He's reversing death, you know, and to say, yeah, but these Romans. You know, it's like, what do you say, right? It just seems silly. So you can't do that because resurrections, exorcisms never happened before and they're greater than anything Israel experienced beforehand. We're not even at the cross yet. This resurrection is just a first fruit, just a taste of his own and then ours, as well when we believe in him because that's what's going to happen to us as well the hope here is that death is just like a long sleep for those who believe in jesus christ that's all it's going to be glory to god right that's true for us today if you believe in him death will just be like a long sleep and you'll wake up and stretch he'll remake your body and you'll live on a glorified new earth face to face with jesus forever and ever and ever and death will never again for eternity have reign on this earth Jesus has come to us. That's what, he, that's what it's all about. 
So that's what we call to have faith and entrust in and, and label as better than anything else, even in the scriptures and in our lives too. A lot of you guys have experienced really great things. All of us have good days by God's grace, right? A lot of us experience really great things. Maybe like seeing God provide in the darkest of moments at the last minute or gotten pregnant when doctors have diagnosed infertility for the rest of your life or experienced the joys of marriage or a faithful friendship for years and years, seeing cancer disappear miraculously in people's bodies or seen in person some of the most beautiful places on the planet or tasted some of the best food, or you could go on and on and on. But never, ever in your life has there ever been anything so great as Jesus chasing you down, touching your hand, commanding evil to leave your soul, and waking you up from death, and doing all of this through his own death on the cross, which atoned for your sins forever. Do you believe that? See, in the spirit of this man saying, never has we seen anything like this in Israel, is that your response to the gospel? Never have I seen anything like this in my life. Lots of great things, but that is by far the best. There's not even a close second to it. Is that how you respond to the gospel or, or not? And if you don't, it's possible that you don't really understand it. And none of us do perfectly. That's why we need to keep hearing it every week. But it's possible that for you, you haven't fully let it marinate in your soul yet because that's, that has never come out of your mouth. You've never said in prayer or to your spouse or friends or to your own soul, Jesus is sufficient for me. There's nothing in my life has nor ever will surpass this miracle of me, a dead man, coming to life. God's made that possible. He's done this over and over and over again in history when we hear about the cross and his resurrection and believe that that took sin and death away uh, from me forever and ever and ever. So either we believe then, a couple of things in closing, that we're, we are the demonized, blind, mute, bleeding out dead people in this passage, or we don't. Uh, and many don't. Uh, but that's part of the invitation here. You are not the Christ. You are not called here, note, in this passage to replicate these miracles. You are the beneficiaries. You are the bleeding out one in your sin. We all are. So believe that and then see the manner in which your Savior has pursued you. And he has, in fact, done that. He loves you in this. He pursues you in this. He travels from somewhere to where you are to touch you and let, let you rise up from the dead in a spiritual sense. Amazing love. So believe that. Have faith in that. Trust in that. That's part of the invitation here, really the major one in the scriptures. But the second thing is, tell somebody this week about all of that. That's the next thing, right? That's what you see here in terms of response. As you see this guy just declare things, we've never seen anything like this. But then you see more than once people spreading the news of that. Once actually in disobedience, interestingly enough to Christ, talked about that. But one, just because it wasn't said, it was just like, how can we not tell people about the, this girl's alive again? How will we not tell that uh, to more individuals? Remember, Jesus never says after his resurrection, see to it that no one knows about this. Keep your mouth shut. Instead, Luke 24 to 26, or 26, 27 says, and Jesus said to them, this is after his resurrection, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Go. That's pretty much the go time, right? 
That's when the disciples gathered. They waited for the Spirit. Boom. The church is born. And ever since, it has been doing that. That's our call as well, is to be a herald. So you see that response? The response here, in other words, is proclamation. Telling people about Jesus. Jesus doesn't say here, after I've done all of this, go and be a very good, moral, safe person and live a quiet life. There's something to that in other portions of the scriptures, but really, that's not what he says here. Uh, He says, go tell people that I have saved them. Go tell people I've been raised from the dead. Go tell people that they can have resurrection life too now if they believe in me. Heralding. It's called heralding or preaching. Not just formally like what I'm doing right now, but anytime you tell people about good news of what God has done for them, you're, you're heralding. Like a herald before a king announcing his greatness. That's what we're called to do. That's the response here. Proclamation, not being a really good person. See the difference there? Not religion, gospel stuff. Heralding. That's what we see. The absence of what we see is super powerful here as as well. And actually in Matthew 9, what's interesting, we read Luke 24. In Matthew 9, you don't see anything at all about, um, you see, I, I think you see a great picture of people just being compelled by the amazingness of what they saw to be on mission and to tell people, right? You never see Jesus actually tell them to go on mission here. They just do. That's part of our philosophy here at Hiawatha, and many churches have this, is we just want the gospel itself and the amazingness of it to compel you to love and good deeds and to mission. In other words, just telling people about him. Uh, not just us saying, go and do that. And I could do that, but I think it would be less powerful and less of you would do it than us just talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and being actually believing it and being compelled to action by it. You guys see the difference there? Both are good. It's fine to remind ourselves and sometimes just to say, that's right, the Bible calls the church to mission and just encourage one another to do that. That's fine, but if we just do that, we're missing the pattern here. Have you been so compelled as these people in the passage by Christ and the gospel that you just start going out and telling people about it? And that's, obviously there's many, many glorious ways to do that, but just tell someone you know well your story. Invite them to church. Have dinner with them. Be intentional and a mover towards the lost world. And at the center of your message and every action you do, though, should be the fact that the Son of God died on the cross and rose again. And decide then in that sense, like we sang before, to know nothing except that. It's a Christian way to live and think. Decide to know nothing ultimately, know lots of things <laughs> to the glory of God, but ultimately decide to know nothing except, except that. If we waver from that, we just come spiritual and religious and Buddhist or Islamic or Mormon or whatever. Nothing will distinguish us if we lose the call to herald and proclaim grace. That God has done everything. We have done nothing. He saves. We don't. That, if that, we have that message. We are distinctly Christian. And we distinctly bring good news to a dead and dying world like we were before and still are in a lot of ways. So, so let's do that. And this is a call to myself to all of our leadership. That's what we want to be, part of what we want to be about as a church is to motivate with the word of God, to believe first and then to motivate and to be compelled by the Jesus that we see in the scriptures to let other people know about it. And if you're laughed at and mocked at for it, you're not alone. Happened a lot before, even to our Savior, right? So be encouraged. And uh, with that, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this day and your grace. Thank you for the gospel in this passage. It's really just about you today like it always is, uh, but especially so because there's just so little call to do anything. 
in this passage except just believe and receive and trust in you and, and tell people about the amazingness of our Savior. Not to save ourselves by how well we do that, but because we already are by grace. That's the point. So I pray for a compelling uh, God to believe, to trust in you afresh, to, to be on mission to our neighbors. And a lot of us here may be thinking about lost people in our life right now. There's probably people here today even that don't know you yet fully. I pray for them. Thank you that you love them. Pray for uh, you to fully reveal yourself to them, even today as I pray, right now, as I pray or in coming uh, days and weeks, just how great of a savior you are. Uh, but though for those outside of our church, but somehow connected with our church relationally, uh, we pray for them, that they too would not be outside the house anymore. Uh, we pray that you would save them from disbelief and woo them to belief that you are able to turn back death itself. As Revelation says, you alone, you alone have the keys of death and Hades. And uh, so we thank you that you are in control of death even now itself because you've defeated it. And so I praise you for that. I bless us as we respond here, respond here and uh, as we go forth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.